So we have been studying, uh, we have been studying evangelism by Jesus. Uh, and what we have learned is that Jesus has an entirely different view of evangelism than many of the churches do, that uh, the institutional church does not have. Uh, and so we're getting insights in how we should conduct ourselves as Christians. How does God want us to conduct this ourselves as we evangelize, as we speak to people about Jesus, as we speak to the lost world? And we've seen that each week now in these various examples. And today, we're going to see it again. Um, and we're going to see this example between uh, a so-called righteous man, Simon, a Pharisee, a leader, a leader of institutional Judaism, uh, and a sinful woman, a sinful woman. That's how the Bible characterizes her, a sinful woman, most likely a prostitute. Uh, but uh, we're going to see the, the distinction between those two. And, and God is going to speak to our hearts about how this is supposed to be a lesson for us. So you can read along with me in Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36. We're going to read some verses, 36 through 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she, bought, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. I want you to get this picture of this woman completely broken with her sin, completely broken in her sin. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And by the way, uh, I want you to realize it writes, here we have language about what this guy's thinking. How do you think we know about what this guy is thinking? Because Jesus knew his thoughts, all right? And, and Jesus spoke later about this issue, knowing that he, spoke, that he, he uh, heard his thoughts. Just remember that, that God knows your thoughts. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow, what a powerful story. What a powerful parable as we see Jesus coming face to face with the lost. 
And, and now you see him as he does this face-to-face -face with institutional religion, okay? Institutional religion. And so the question I have for you now as you read this and reflect on this, uh, which of these two people are we? Who are we? Are we the woman with a broken heart, broken in sin, uh, who is in need of the mercy of the Lord? Uh, or do I congratulate myself? Uh, and lift myself up and say that I'm better than a prostitute, I'm better than an adulterer, I'm better than my neighbor. Uh, because if we're in the latter category, then we're outside of the will of God. Uh, because this whole message, this whole series is that God wants us to understand that all of us are sinners. All of us are flawed. All of us have warts. And none of us are going to get to heaven, get to be with God because of our internal goodness. All right? There is no internal goodness. There is no internal righteousness. And so God wants us to understand that, and as we understand that, impacting the lost world. So there are a number of people here present at this dinner paying honor to Christ. And one of them is a Pharisee named Simon. And Simon invites Jesus to dinner, most likely because he wants to see really what's behind Jesus. Uh, he probably has heard about the miracles, uh, and he wants to see really... What kind of person is Jesus? Is he really a prophet of God? Obviously, he has come outside of the typical road path that you would expect from the Pharisees. He wasn't trained in those kind of facilities, and yet Jesus seems to be uh, heads and tails above any of these other people. So he's trying to find out, is this guy, is this Jesus really a prophet from God? The other person in the story is this woman uh, who is washing the feet of Jesus with her tears, who is so broken about her life, about her desperate life and her desperate condition, that she just bows her head and anoints the feet of the Lord uh, as a result of her sins. Now, we never hear in this story what her sins were about. We also don't hear in this story uh, Jesus saying, I need you to stand up and give me a testimony about where you came from. You notice that? All right, do you notice this? Because as I have studied uh, Jesus in these past few weeks, one of the things, the things that have, has impressed me is that Jesus doesn't have a prepared script. I need you to say these words. I'm a loser. I'm a sinner. I am lost. I have done X, Y, and Z. You have never seen Jesus say this. Instead, Jesus sees the heart. He sees the brokenness, and the very evidence of the brokenness is in her act, in her life as she bows before Christ, washes his feet, crying in desperation, pouring that, that expensive perfume on him, honoring him, all right? And God sees the faith in her heart. So this is a tremendous juxtaposition between two positions in the church. One effectively is outside on the sidewalk, and the other is inside at the pulpit. One is, one is outside of the realm uh, of righteousness, as we would define it. The other is the very paragon of righteousness. And that's what Jesus wants you to see, how the kingdom of God turns it upside down. All right? The kingdom of God turns it upside down. And so one of the things that we have done our whole lives uh, is we have characterized Pharisees uh, as losers. My cousin Vic's uh, father had a beautiful 1959 Chevy, uh, and he called that car a Pharisee. 
<laughs> and he called it a Pharisee because if he drove that car up, you would be stunned with the beauty of a car. It gleamed. It was gorgeous. It had terrific design. The only problem, every 10 miles, it broke down. <laughs> you really couldn't, you couldn't take it anywhere. Burned oil. It was, a, it was a lousy car, but boy, it looked good. And, and, and so it was, I remember being a kid, remember him saying that to me, and it, and it, and it reflected with me in terms of how we view Pharisees. Well, it's a little too easy for us to criticize Pharisees. So I wanted to spend a little time to you today tell, telling you about what it meant to be a Pharisee. If you were a Pharisee, effectively, you were committed to serving God. You were committed to upholding the rules and commandments of God. Uh, you were committed to daily prayer. You were committed to attendance at worship several times a week. They were devoted to reading God's word and understanding God's word and teaching God's word uh, and, and applying it in every aspect of their lives. They were committed to tithing, giving a, a specific percentage of whatever income they had. They gave it to the synagogue. Sounds like a pretty good person, doesn't it? Sounds like a pretty good person. And so the question for me is, uh, I have to admire that attendance and concern for the word of God. I have to admire that, that uh, commitment to tithing. I have to admire their willingness to uphold the word of God. But what was it, what was it that God so repudiated this apparent religiosity? Because that's exactly what it was, apparent religiosity, meaning God sees your heart. I don't care how many times you go to church. I don't care if you're a deacon or you're an elder. I don't even care if you're a pastor. The question is, are you committed to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed to him in submission? Have, have you given him everything in your life and recognizing that you are lost and without him you are nowhere? Or have you somehow elevated your personal life standards to such an extent that you are now comfortable within yourself? We should never be comfortable within ourselves. And let me say this very clearly. Look, I believe in eternal security, meaning I believe that once you're saved and you're committed to God, Paul tells us that nothing shall ever separate us from the kingdom of God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, if nothing can ever separate us, then that means I'm going to be with Jesus forever once he has held me in his hand and he has secured my salvation. But having said that, and I'm comfortable knowing where I'm going, I still am not comfortable with the status of how my life is. I am not a righteous person. God sees me as righteous through Jesus, but truly I am not righteous. And so God wants us constantly to repent and bow uh, and ask for help and mercy and justice and forgiveness every day of your life, multiple times a day, really. Uh, I often say, you know, it's just an expression that I've developed in my life. I said, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. And my wife said, what did you do? Breathing. <laughs> How's that? Breathing. Is that good enough? Breathing. Have mercy on me. Meaning that I am a sinning machine, that, I, that the, the flesh constantly raises itself up, that, that the flaws that I, that I don't want to have, the things that I don't want to do, I wind up doing, as Paul said. And so it's, that's, the, that's the mindset that God wants in a, in a man of God, in a woman of God. 
That's what God wants from us. Now, I'm not raising myself up as any pious person. Far be it. I'm the last person in the world that would do that. But instead, what I want you to understand is that this is the picture that God wants. This is why, this is why the, the Pharisees were not high on God's list. This is what he had against them. And so in their eagerness to serve God and to commit themselves to living righteously, the Pharisees were acutely aware of the uncleanness and impropriety of sin. They had become chief fruit inspectors. They were the people that looked out, and as they surveyed the crowd, yes, I can see the sinfulness. I can see the tax collectors. I can see the adulterers. Uh, I can see the prostitutes, and they're condemning them uh, in their mind and separating themselves separating themselves from those people. They didn't want to be associated with those people. Uh, and, and so here he is in his house. Do you think this woman had an invitation to his house? Right? You think she was invited? I don't think so. Okay. I think she busted that party. All right. She knew Jesus was in there and she had made it up in her mind. I'm going to see Jesus. Uh, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to bow at his feet before the son of God. Uh, and as I do that, uh, I'm, I'm going to wash his feet and I'm going to honor him. Uh, and in her faith to do that, Jesus saw it. She wasn't invited to that house. Uh, and, and because uh, Simon would never invite somebody like that to their house. He'd never invite somebody like that. He wanted to be separated from those people. And so the first thing that I say to you is how do we act? How do we act uh, when you come across people that are in need of salvation? Do you find yourself wanting to be separated? You know, come across homeless people, all right, or people that are actively involved in sin or people who, whose lives are not consistent with your life or who, who may be living in, in, in sin? Or do you find yourself abhorred from that, repelled from that, or instead do you look at this as an opportunity to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody who desperately needs it? That's what you should be saying. You should be asking God, to reform your thinking so that when you see people in need, you are drawn to them. And as you exhibit the love of God, then the Holy Spirit takes over and you begin to see uh, sin in a different way. And so the fact that Jesus allows the woman to come so close to him and to touch him in such a personal way makes Simon question whether Jesus can truly be a prophet from God. How can this man be a prophet when he is allowing this prostitute to anoint his feet, when he has come into such close contact with this sinner? How can he be a prophet from God? And the answer is that is exactly why he is a prophet from God, because God came to save the lost. That's who God came from. God didn't come to save people who think that, thought that they were already righteous, because if you're in every case that we've studied, in every case that we've studied, when people thought they were righteous, Jesus sent them back to study the law, study the law and see it. And so this becomes an important example for, for us. This woman is clearly burdened by her sinfulness. She is accustomed to being ignored and despised by churchgoers. People don't want to be around her. They don't want her in their presence. They walk around her. Uh, and these are uh, people are also known as righteous people. Now, uh, I'm going to give you an example and bear with me, Sunday goers that, have, that study with me on Sunday. But there recently was a news story 
uh, about a church in Michigan. And in this church in Michigan, they had a reputation for hiring and firing pastors, hiring and firing them often. And so they had just hired a new guy. And so as he was about to be, go through his investiture on that first Sunday, as they're walking into church, lo and behold, there's this despicable-looking uh, homeless guy with a long beard, raggedy clothing, holding a can out in front of the church. Uh, and as the churchgoers are going in, as the deacons are going in, they're telling the guy, get out of here. You're not around to be around here. This is not a place for you. Beat it. We're, we have a church service going on this morning. We're, you know, this is outside of what we want to see. You're, you're affecting our service. And, and one after the other, they repudiated this guy. Well, this is being filmed uh, because it was supposed to be a first investiture. Well, as the service is about to start, this homeless guy walks around the back of the church, takes off his beard, takes off his raggedy clothing, puts on his garments, and guess what? Here's your new pastor. He gets up to the front, take, gets on the pulpit, and he says, I want you to know one thing. He says, this is my first sermon. I was disgusted with the way you people treated me when I stood outside and looked like a homeless person. I was disgusted. And I'm going to tell you something. That means that most of you have not really learned the lessons of God. The love of God is absent from your life. And so here's the first sermon. Go home this week and reflect about how you, how you acted and come back next week with a change of heart. That was it. The church starts crying. The church is socked. People are, are devastated by this. But that began to change the way that church felt. When you come face to face with, with how God wants you to act and how God wants you to love, I mean, your life will be entirely different. Can you imagine, uh, I mean, uh, somebody uh, winding up seeing that kind of action in front of a church? God, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us uh, that, we should, that we would act this way. And I know we wouldn't do it with a mean spirit, but it's the way we think. It's the way we think. And God is telling us to think differently. Uh, and so this woman has heard about Jesus. Clearly she has. She's heard he's a preacher with a difference. Uh, and she has heard that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so she comes to honor him. This is a person who honors sinners, who has a heart for the brokenhearted. And so here she is. She takes out this expensive ointment and gives it to him with all the devotion of her heart. Now you understand, Jesus sees her heart just like he saw Simon's heart. Just like he read Simon, just as clearly as if Simon was an open book. And so Jesus responds to the woman um, in a very different way. Jesus gladly receives the devotion uh, that she offers him. He understands that this extraordinary expression of love comes from a heart that is overwhelmed by her awareness of sin. This is important, all right? Her heart is burdened by an awareness of sin. Even as she bows and is crying and is brokenhearted and honors the Lord, it is the brokenness of the heart that indicates her awareness of sin, and her tears indicate repentance. Her tears indicate repentance. This sinful woman understands that Jesus is receiving her with love despite her sin. In fact, we could say he's receiving her in love because of her sin. Now, look, we know that Jesus came into the world 
to seek and save the lost. Just turn quickly to Luke chapter 19 as we read that verse. Luke 19, verse 9, in the house of Zacchaeus, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. There it is. To seek and to save what was lost. Not to lift up the supposedly righteous, not to lift up the religious elite, but to seek and to save those who were lost. He came and he loved people, not despite their sin, but because of it. That's why he loves us. That's why you're saved, because he recognized you were lost, that you would never get to heaven, that you would never get to see God. But when you recognized that deficit in your life and reached up, he instantaneously saved you. And by the way, let me add this. Uh, and it's clear when you study uh, John 17, verses 25 and 26, uh, Jesus speaks about the fact that you have in your heart the love of God. You have the spirit of Jesus inside of you. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit seals you. And when he seals you at that moment, part of Jesus' spirit resides in your heart. That means that you have the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son in your heart. Now, if you have that kind of love in your heart, how can we go out into a world that is lost and not elevate those people? How can we not embrace them? The reason is that for most of us, we have spent our entire adult lives turning it down, turning it down. Don't let the Holy Spirit percolate up in our life, all right? And we, and we haven't studied the word. We haven't read the word, or we haven't communicated enough to God, or we haven't gone to Bible study. We've done all these things to suppress the love of God that is innately placed within your heart at the time that you were saved. And I'm going to tell you something. One of the things that these lessons have to do is it has to lift you up and force you to say, Father, I need to love more. I need to love more. I need to have your spirit in my heart that when I see the lost and the oppressed, and I see a lack of justice that I lift up my heart and I do what you want me to do. I, I embrace the lost. I give them the message of hope. I speak to people about Jesus Christ. And so this is what it, what it is. And now notice this, please. Notice this. Jesus came and loved people, not despite their sin, but because of it. He does not insist that she get up and give a testimony of her intention to live purely in the future. Now, I have some well-meaning people that I know who are Bible teachers who, who believe in their hearts that in order to be saved, you have to go by a specific script, okay? And I understand that there are, there are places in, in, in the New Testament, specifically in Romans, where you may get that, that idea. But I would ask you this. When the thief on the cross turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me this day in paradise. Remember that? Remember that? Jesus didn't say, well, I have a few questions for you. <laughs> I have a few questions for you, okay? Uh, do you believe I'm divine? Uh, do you believe I'm the son of God? Have you been baptized in water? Uh, would you be willing to be baptized in water? I know it's a little inconvenient right now, but <laughs> I mean, you know, just, just think of all the things 
that you have been taught that you have to say to people as you bring them to salvation. And I've been there, I understand this, but I want you to see that none of that takes place at the cross. And what does Jesus say? Today, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Now, look at this example. Look at this example. And I'm sorry, folks, I can't find a better example than Jesus. I understand we may look at other examples in the Bible, and that's okay, but I'm looking at Jesus. I'm looking at this woman, and he, he forgives her sins. Her sins are forgiven. Why? Because he looked at her heart. He saw the brokenness and repentance in her heart. He saw the faith that she had in her heart in him, that she recognized who he was. Even though this was not, in fact, articulated, he read it all, and he forgave her sins that very moment because he saw the brokenness and faithfulness that she had in him. There is nothing, nothing about his response to her that would indicate the slightest hesitation about his welcoming, welcoming her actions wholeheartedly. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this gets back to fruit inspecting. All right? Ooh, no, I don't know if they're saved. I didn't hear those words. I, and, and, you know, we... we I, 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 we didn't have a water baptism. Do you think seriously? Do you think that water baptism is what's going to make you saved or not? And hey, look, I'm a Baptist. All right? All right, let me get that right out of the way. But I'm going to clue you in, folks. Your denomination is not getting you to God. How about an amen on that one? All right? Your denomination is not getting you to God. I don't care what your great-grandparents were and your grandparents all right, and your mother and father, then you all went to the same church. That's not getting you to Jesus, okay? Just like baptism isn't getting you to Jesus, all right? Yes, we get baptized because we become part of a community of believers. It becomes our testimony. Yes, I'm in favor of it, but it is not the critical element of salvation, the critical element of salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Put a, put a period at the end of it. That's it. That plus nothing is salvation. All right? I mean, really. Honestly. Uh, and, and when I hear people, you know, go on and say, well, I'm not really sure that they're saved. I'm not really sure that they're saved. Uh, you know? Uh, and the question I have for you, it's not your call. I got that? It's not your call. All right? Your call is to bring them to the throne of Jesus. Your call is to embrace them in love. Your call is to bring them to where they get convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then turn it over to Jesus. I think he can do a little better job than we can. Right? I think he can do a little better job. And so that's what this story is about. Now, let me make this clear so we understand it. Does this act of devotion, was it the, the, the perfume was it the washing of the feet? Was, it, was that devotion? Did that earn her forgiveness? No. You understand? No. There's no physical act that gives you forgiveness. No, it was, in fact, her washing, wiping, kissing, and anointing of Jesus' feet came from a grateful heart, and Jesus accepts the gift. She was grateful. <clears throat> she loved him. Uh, hers is not a work to earn forgiveness. Rather, it is a response to the love 
of Christ coming out in faithfulness. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, please. Galatians 5, verse 6. For, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. How do you like that? Faith expressing itself through love. Not getting up and saying, I have faith, Jesus. I have faith. No, it's faith expressed through love. How do I know that you have faith? I see it expressed in your love of Jesus Christ. That, that was the faith. She expressed her faith by loving him, by bowing to him, by submitting to him, by, by pouring this perfume on it. And see, when you read that verse, you see here that, that uh, and I love the way that's phrased, it's phrased that's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Now, you know that, that the Jewish people had been taught right from the very beginning from Abraham that, that one of the signs that they were to be a called out people for God was that God expected them to be circumcised, every single one of them to be circumcised. And you know, when we studied Moses, there was an issue that Moses' sons had not been circumcised and God really called Moses out on that uh, until the wife circumcised the sons, all right? So that was an issue if you were an Old Testament Jew, but guess what? There's a new covenant, it's Jesus Christ. There's no physical act that, that has to accompany faith. It's Jesus Christ. God is a spirit. And those that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth, not in the physical manifestation of circumcision or lack of circumcision. All right? I mean, you understand this and see this and how important it is. So the truest sign of genuine faith in Jesus is love for Jesus, love that is founded in his love for us. We love him because he died on the cross for us. He has filled us with his love. We have been filled with the love of the Father. We have this, and so as we do this, we are devoted to him, and we have faith in him, and we bow to him, and we worship him. And so here she is. Jesus commends her for her faith, and you might say, gee, how does Jesus know she has that faith? Because he sees the love expressed towards him. That's how. That's how we know how, how uh, people have faith in God. We see their love. We see their life being an example. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is, all right? That you see a change in people. You see them. Uh, and, and so you see this here. And so Jesus sends her away with the peace of God in her heart. Now, to Simon, Jesus tells a very different kind of story. The woman's story was rather simple. But Jesus tells a different story. This story is simple and involves two people that owe debt. One owes a great debt, one owes a, a much lesser debt. And so the question becomes, the issue that Jesus says, which of those two people would love the uh, moneylender more who is forgiven the debt? He who had the large debt or he who had the smaller debt? And Simon answers correctly. Well, obviously, Jesus, the, the guy who owed, who owed more, the guy who owed more would have a greater uh, uh, respect in his heart for what, for what has taken place. And so uh, Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Those who have been forgiven more would, would answer rightly. And so now 
Jesus, Simon still doesn't understand. You see how people are? He still doesn't understand how this story applies to him. Well, what's the point of this, Jesus? I mean, really, where, where are you going with this? Jesus doesn't, doesn't make, make it an issue. Um, but Jesus does not directly tell Simon the good news of forgiveness and eternal life. Do you notice that here? He doesn't tell him the story. Uh, instead of praising him, Jesus rebukes him for not having shown more devotion, for not having shown more love. Simon has failed to do the certain things that Jesus would recognize would be a demonstration of love and hospitality uh, as a welcoming host. And, and you could see this here. We could focus in on verses uh, 44, um, and 44 to, to uh, 46. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, look at what the other people in the room say. Who is this guy? Who, who is this guy who says your sins are forgiven? Nobody ever said that before. Your sins are, well, that's why, because you're, look, you're in the presence of divinity. You're God. He's God. That's the difference. And so what do you see here? Simon, uh, the, the, in the position of, of religiosity, does not recognize that he's in the presence of a divine being. He does not recognize that God has come into his house. He does not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah. He does not do this, and his actions bear this out. He has done nothing to show that extra step of hospitality or love. And when Jesus sees that you don't do that in your, your life, that you have, not you have not really responded in faithfulness, and that's what it is, it's in faithfulness, then your sins are not forgiven. And I'm not going to tell you the story of eternal life because you're not ready to hear it because you're not in a broken position as she was in brokenness. That's when God comes and speaks to us and, and, he, and he honors us with salvation. And so Simon does not know that Jesus is the Savior, Messiah, and Lord. He clearly lacks a true and deep knowledge of God and does not know his own status before God. Let me repeat that. He does not have a deep and abiding understanding of God. <clears throat> he does not know his own status of before God. How can that be? He's a Pharisee. He's in the temple all the time. He's a teacher. I don't care what you teach. If you don't recognize that you are a sinner and broken and in a desperate need for God, you are nowhere. You are nowhere. And that's why you can go all around America and listen to all these preachers, or you can go on television and, and listen to these people, unless you're dealing with somebody who is clearly broken and recognizes their, their sinful state. All I'm hearing are speeches. Speeches. Yeah, it's plugged once in a while with a Bible verse. But they're speeches. But when you come in the presence of God, when the Holy Spirit has inspired it and you hear the words of God in your heart, you should be going, amen, 
Amen. He's right. God, forgive me. I hope that right now, even while I'm speaking, that all of you are praying. All of you are speaking out to God, asking God to help you love more, have a greater sensitivity to your standing before God. What do I need to change in my life, God? Who do I need to love more? How do I need to represent you more to a lost world? Uh, and there, you now look at the remarkable words in Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Look, Jesus didn't say she was a good person. Her sins were many, but those many sins are forgiven. But he was forgiven little, loves little. Meaning what? He who doesn't recognize that he is a sinner, that he is filled with sinfulness. He's forgiven little because he has not come to the terms of understanding his standing. The, the sinful woman is deeply aware of her moral need before God and before Jesus. And she pours out her love uh, to Jesus in passionate thankfulness. That's what this is about. She knew who she was. She knew where she was going. She was despised by the community. She didn't have any friends. And there she went to the one person who was her friend, who she recognized as the Messiah. It didn't take any great speech. Her act of devotion existed and, and, and amplified everything that she needed. And so she pours out her passionate thankfulness. The righteous man, the Pharisee, on the other hand, does not think he needs to be forgiven anything. I don't need to be forgiven anything. So he offers Jesus no thanks for the Lord's presence in his home. No thanks, no devotion, no respect, no, no recognition that he is the Messiah. No recognition of any of that. Uh, he has no true sense of his own sin. Simon is not aware. He's not aware of his desperate condition uh, and desperate need for the forgiveness and mercy of God in no way. Uh, and so you see it. It just never enters his mind that this Jesus might in fact be the Messiah. Never even enters his mind. And so you say, how can a person who is in such a high religious position in Israel not recognize that? Because all of institutional Judaism didn't recognize it. They were so uh, confounded with their own sense of piety their own religiosity, that they never even saw the Son of God, the Messiah, coming into their presence. How do you like that? That's what God is calling us today, to a recognition of this. Look, I'm preaching to guys that go to church. I'm preaching to guys who are deacons and elders. I'm preaching to guys who are trying to impact the kingdom of God. And as good as you guys are, and as saved as you guys are, I want you to recognize you have a desperate ongoing, eternal need for Jesus Christ. It never ends. There's never a day when you put a period in it. You have to constantly come to God and ask for mercy and help and refilling and filling again of the Holy Spirit in your life, as that is what will be the thing that will allow you to go out into a lost world. I mean, and this is such a powerful story. And so on the, here's Simon, the so-called righteous man, uh, who is still a sinner at the end of the day that Jesus leaves, unaware of his need for forgiveness and, and thus not justified. And so above all, Jesus wants to drive Simon to the point where he will begin to understand that he too is a sinner. And so folks, here's the call on your life. <clears throat> God wants you to reach out to the older brothers in our midst. Okay, 
the older brothers in our midst, in our churches, the prodigal sons, we are surrounded by people who think they don't need Jesus because they consider themselves saved. And I would say to you that your job is to let them know how we have an ongoing need for repentance before Jesus Christ. All right? Don't let these so-called religious, pious people go, go around and operate as if they are immune, immune to these stories. Jesus is targeting them. Look, he targets us. When I get up here and speak, don't you think that I'm, I am uh, listening to this story and saying to God, where are the deficits in my life? Yes, he's called me to preach. Yes, he may have given me a gift, but the gift isn't what's going to get me to heaven. All right? I could be the most gifted orator, but unless I bow in submission to Christ, I recognize my own sinful nature. That's what's going to be the ticket to get me there. And so that's the nature of understanding this. And so God wants us not only to go out and find those people who are, who are caught in sin, but as we do evangelism by Jesus, it's also about those people who don't think they need Jesus because they think they're good enough. All right? That's the message. You think you're good enough. And we all have people in our lives like that. All right? And God wants you to reach out and speak to them and talk to them and have sympathy and have love for them. And so what's the lesson here? The first lesson is that God says, do not compare yourselves to other people. Do not use other people as the exemplar in your life as to what you should be. I don't care about your neighbors or your brother-in-law. I don't care about people that you know, all right, and that you look like you have a more moral life. You compare yourselves to Jesus. You get up in the morning, look in the mirror. You go, you, I want you to see Jesus Christ looking back at you. Not your neighbor down the block. Look, look at Jesus looking back at you because when you see Jesus looking back at you, you're bowing in submission. You recognize that you're, you're far from the mark. And I know you're saved, but it's an ongoing act of justification and prayer every day, asking God to fill you and refill you. Yes, you're saved, but you still need to be filled and refilled. And it's in this ongoing act of, of Jesus Please have mercy on me. Help me, Lord. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your presence. Help me to be the way, way you want me to be. That's because that's how God wants us to be. And, and so don't compare yourselves to others. The other thing is, do not make people jump through hoops to prove their repentance. All right? And so as you go out in the world and you're bringing people to, to repentance, you're bringing them to Jesus Christ, I want you to remember that you are not a fruit inspector. At the end, you're not the person who's going to determine whether they're saved or not. Only Christ is going to do that. And so you don't have to sit there and say, now I want you to get up. I want you to get up in front of everybody. I want you to detail all the crappy things you did your whole life. <laughs> Just start at A and go to Z. I don't care if it takes us two hours. We're going to sit here and listen to this. Often I think that's self-titillation. Oh, yeah, you did that? Wow. Really? Whoa. Wow. Wow. And, we, and silently, what are we doing? We're at an elevator. Oh, I thank you, God. I'm not like that person. Oh, wow. Jesus. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for I'm not like that. Instead, Jesus, you don't have to make that happen. When you see the brokenness of people and they come and understand the love of Jesus Christ, uh, and so you see it, how Jesus accepts it joyfully without skepticism. 
without a public presentation, without a speech. And so the, for many people, the law of God must be communicated prior to the gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean that for many so-called religious people who have elevated themselves in piety, they need to go back and review what the standards of God really were as to holiness. Go back and read Leviticus 16. See what had to take place on the Day of Atonement if you were a high priest. How many washings and sacrificial burnings, all right, uh, and, and how the scapegoat had to be put out into the desert. Read that and re reflect on the fact that even the high priest at the moment of having gone through all of this ceremonial washings had to have bells on the, on the bottom of his robe and a rope tied around him so that when he walked into the holy of holies before the truly holy one, God himself had been properly washed and sanctified because if he didn't, he would be struck down dead and they would pull his carcass out because they wouldn't hear the bells ringing any longer, knowing that he had been dead. This is the holiness of God. None of us can ever approach the holiness of God. No amount of so-called righteousness or piety could ever do that. And that has to be reflected in your life every single day. And that is why when you see a person who is lost in sinfulness, you don't, you don't walk away, but instead you say, that is me. But for the grace of Jesus Christ, that's me. I was lost, but for Jesus Christ, but the blood of Christ. And when you live your life like that, when you live your life like that, then you understand truly what it means, what it means to be a Christian. Look, we call this kindergarten theology. Kindergarten theology, meaning what? Meaning people have to know exactly what the law of God demanded before Christ came. Why no one could live up to it. That's kindergarten theology. And effectively, Jesus sends Simon back to kindergarten, outlining the requirements for pleasing God and listing acts of love that the woman had done in service to God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God other than accepting Jesus Christ. Go back and study the law of God. See what perfection required. Uh, and so as we've studied this series, we see that Jesus did that essentially for three men. Certainly he sent Simon here back to kindergarten. He sent the wealthy young man that we studied about. He sent him back. And the Bible teacher he sent back. All to recognize, go back and study the commandments. See what the commandments were about. And when you recognize that you couldn't live up to the commandments, even though you thought you lived up to the commandments, you will recognize that only through the love of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross, we are saved. That's why when you deal with people like that, maybe you send them back to kindergarten. So we need to communicate to these people, and now we see two different levels of people. This is evangelism. We, we, we appeal to those who are on the curb, those who are lost, who have, who have given up in terms of life, and those who think they need nothing. And God wants us to speak to both of them in love. God wants to communicate his repentance and forgiveness to both. And, and so, uh, look, here's the deal. So many churches today have devised rules about what Christians ought to do. All right? Ought to do or not to do with their lives. Uh, including rules about clothing and dress and drink and public and private behavior. 
and membership requirements regarding church. Uh, these rules that we design for ourselves will never produce righteousness. Can I get an amen? amen? These rules will never produce righteousness. The only thing that will produce righteousness is humility before God, a broken spirit, a submission, and a recognition that we, that we cannot go on without Jesus Christ in our lives. And so this is what it means to have the love of God in your heart. This is what it's about. This is why God wants you to be bowed out to him in humility and have that love come in that he has given you from the moment that you were saved. And I know some of you are saying right now, well, I don't know, I'm not a really loving person. Well, if you're not a loving person, get on your knees and ask God to make you more loving. He'll do that. He's already given you the equipment. You have everything you need right now in your heart. If you're saved, if you've given Jesus your life, he has given you everything. He's filled you with his spirit. He's given you the very essence of Jesus Christ and the love of God is right now embodied in your heart. And now what you need to do is, Lord, manifest it more. Help me, Father, to light this fire. Help me, Lord, to be able to be more loving. Help me to go out and embrace the people that you want me to embrace. Help me, Father, to be a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better churchgoer. Help me to be the kind of person that when he sees someone lost, they will embrace the lost person. Help me not to be a fruit inspector. Help me, Lord. I don't want to be this fruit inspector. Help me instead to see the need and to step out as your man in every way. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the word that you have for us today. Lord, our, our hearts are resonating with hope as we understand what your expectation is for us. Lord, I ask you that not to, to be with every man as he leaves today, to touch his heart and to put it on fire, to let him know what the call of our life is with you, what you expect us to do, and to fill us with love, Lord, to fill us with love that when we go out and we embrace those who need you and bring them to you, Lord, because we don't save anybody, but Lord, we want to bring them to you and let the Holy Spirit do its work. Be with our men, protect them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word next week as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.